This is Africa Digest. Your time is 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Hello, my name is Spumela Lezondi and I am with you until 1800 hours Central African time this evening. We are broadcasting live from Johannesburg in South Africa and are on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa and on channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. That is channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. In studio, there is Amanda Machaka, Wisani Matebula, and Musibudi Makura. Your top stories. The death toll climbs following an attack in Somalia. A new trial in South Africa has shown how to the text message system has the ability to improve adherence to care in chronic patients. In economics, a Nigerian oil minister praises open-mindedness in the OPEC meeting. And in sports, news making the rounds in the South African football circles is that former Nigerian Super Eagles coach is new Orlando Pirates coach. But let's get the news first from Amanda. Thank you, Spumelele. Good evening. The authorities in Somalia say the death toll in yesterday's attack on a hotel in Mogadishu has risen to 13, with more than 40 others seriously wounded. James Manula has the latest. Five days after the United States carried out airstrikes in south-central Somalia, where it killed Abdullahi Haji Daoud, a senior al-Shabaab military commander and experienced planner, the militants stormed Mogadishu's ambassador hotel and killed at least 13 people. According to the authorities in Mogadishu, 10 people were killed on the spot and three others that had sustained serious injuries died later in hospital where they were receiving treatment. Moroccan police have arrested six people suspected of belonging to a militant cell with ties to Islamic State. The cell had been active in Casablanca and the northern city of Tetuan and its neighboring town of Matil. The group was planning to send members to war zones and carry out attacks against Morocco when they return. Hundreds of fighters from Morocco and other Maghreb nations have joined Islamist militant forces in the conflict in Iraq and Syria and also in Libya. Some are threatening to return to carry out attacks and recruit more jihadis in their home countries. Moroccan authorities believe around 1,500 Moroccan nationals have left to fight with armed groups in Syria and Iraq, including 220 who have returned home and been jailed and 286 have been killed. South Africa's Gauteng Social Development Department is making plans to fly back to Malawi, a pair of twins born inside a bus in Benoni. Their mother gave birth to them after the bus they were traveling in from Malawi to Johannesburg broke down. The babies and the mother were taken to the Tambo Memorial Hospital in Boxburg. The department's Shoki Chabalala. 
the Department of Social Development, together with the Embassy, Home Affairs, and the Department of Health, will make the necessary arrangements to have the children flown to Malawi. It's Child Protection Week. There is no way we can let those twins to be in the bus to Malawi with their mother. That's the best we can do in promoting and protecting the rights of children. And finally, more heavy downpours are expected to sweep across parts of Europe with fears that it may worsen floods that have already left six people dead. Five people drowned in southern Germany with several more missing. Some parts of central France have seen the worst floods in over a century. Channel Africa News. Thank you very much, Amanda, for that update. Now, authorities in Somalia say the death toll in yesterday's attack on a hotel in Mogadishu has risen to 13, with more than 40 others seriously wounded. James Shimanyula has filed the following update. Five days after the United States carried out airstrikes in south-central Somalia, where it killed Abdullahi Haji Daoud, a senior al-Shabaab military commander, and experienced planner, the militants stormed Mogadishu's ambassador hotel and killed at least 13 people. According to the authorities in Mogadishu, 10 people were killed on the spot and three others that had sustained serious injuries died later in hospital where they were receiving treatment. More than 40 others are still nursing wounds following the attack that occurred yesterday Wednesday. According to one of Somalia's members of parliament, Mohamed Shurie Ismail, two of his colleagues were also killed during the attack on the hotel. Ismail named the parliamentarians as Mohamed Gure and Abdullahi Jama, adding that a third member of parliament, Abdullahi Hashi, escaped death by a whisker only sustaining a minor injury on his head. Meanwhile, the situation remains unpredictable in Mogadishu after Al-Shabaab militants sent out a message through their clandestine networks threatening to unleash yet another major attack any time from now to, as they put it in the clandestine message, to revenge against the killing of Abdullahi Haji Dawood, one of their senior military commanders, who, as has been said at the outset, was killed by a U.S. drone earlier this week. In a related development, the authorities in Mogadishu have confirmed that the very Abdullahi Haji Dawood, one of the Al-Shabaab senior military commanders, was responsible for the attack in Kenya at Garissa University, in which more than 140 people lost their lives. The question that arises is whether or not Al-Shabaab militants still have capacity to carry out attacks in Mogadishu. To answer this question, I sought comments from Alexander Moura, an expert in East Africa on the Horn of Africa. Speaking from South Sudan, where he's based, Alexander Maura underlined the fact that Al-Shabaab militants are still powerful and that they have created new methods of attacking Mogadishu. The terrorist network has capacity to employ new tactics. You know very well that um, the government in Mogadishu has got uh, tight security from Amisom. How come that Al-Shabaab can just penetrate and carry out their attacks and then disappear in uh, thin air? 
I don't know whether it's demoralization. Do you think this August well for Somalia, given that they are going to hold elections in August with such attack? It doesn't go well for Somalia because it sends shockwaves. It sends shockwaves. The shockwaves that Alexander Maura, an expert on Somalia, is referring to are fears instilled in residents of Mogadishu who from time to time are caught unawares during intermittent Al-Shabaab attacks. But Emmanuel Kisiangani, an expert on the Horn of Africa at the Nairobi branch of the South African-based Institute for Security Studies, concurred with Somali expert Alexander Maura, but reflected on a different perspective hinged on the military power of the militants. They still have the weapons. They still pose a threat. It will take some time before they are totally vanquished. As al-Shabaab militants prepare to carry out another attack on Mogadishu, Somali President Sheikh Hassan Mahmoud is optimistic that his government will win its war against al-Shabaab militants. We will fight and defeat al-Shabaab. We will fight them and we will overcome them. That was Somali President Sheikh Hassan Mahmoud. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The leader of Mozambique's opposition, Renamo Afonso Lagama, has accused the military of staging a fresh attack on his base. Lagama, who has been holed up in the Gorogosa forest of central Mozambique since October last year, was speaking in a news conference via telephone to journalists gathered at the party headquarters in the capital, Maputo. He claims that last Friday the army attacked his base and deployed armored vehicles. More from our Mozambican correspondent, Bright Sonjera. So, uh, what is happening now is that uh, uh, the chief security of Afonso Jagama is not real as uh, uh, he's supposed to be. The place where Afonso Jagama is living now is shaped uh, by the armed forces, uh, the security uh, forces. Uh, all this is to guarantee the security of Afonso Jagama himself, according to the commander-in-chief uh, of uh, Armed forces in Mozambique. So Afonso Chakama is also saying that uh, accuses the uh, the security of the government, the armed forces, that they are trying uh, to go and be um, uh, the territories of uh, Afonso Chakama. So he is afraid to be killed by these soldiers. But it is true, according to the uh, officers from the government, who say that uh, these soldiers. Uh, everywhere, uh, uh, making a security for the popular. Because uh, the government said that they want to discuss with Afonso Jagama, but the, his soldiers are still attacking cars and civilians. So the government sent their uh, soldiers to protect the people. But uh, Afonso Jagama, uh, he said yesterday that uh, he thinks that the uh, government is planning to bomb the bases of Afonso Jagama, uh, which is not true according to the uh, government. And are his whereabouts known? Do we know where Alfonso Takama is currently? Is he still in the forest? Alfonso Jagama is still in the forest, but the uh, people, they are amazing. Once Alfonso Jagama went to uh, Beira by the uh, national mediators to pass with our uh, president, I think uh, it was uh, last year, uh, whereby Afonso Jagama uh, went to Beira to prepare about the discussion with the president. But the uh, armed forces uh, had a security there, 
but the Afonso Jagama went out the house without knowing the security forces. Jagama uh, is out of the house where he was. So from that time, Afonso Jagama remained in the bush of Gorongosa um, uh, where he is living. And he said that uh, even the discussions that the government want to discuss with him, these peace negotiations will not happen in Maputo, but it might be in the central uh, region where he knows that the security will be a uh, war to him, according to his voice. And he said he will continue dealing with the government with these discussions. But uh, it's amazing that uh, the government is still sending soldiers in the territory where Afonso Jagama is living now. So it will be uh, impossible to make all we can uh, to hold this discussion very soon. And is there any indication at the stage when these peace talks are likely to resume? There's an indication that uh, all the discussions is going well, but the problem is that while discussing the armed forces, uh, these forces from the government and uh, uh, Arenam uh, soldiers, they are still firing. So this is something that uh, makes uh, this uh, the leader of Arenam to uh, reduce the discussions because the government has said that uh, they will not continue sending soldiers to the territory of Arenam. But still, as of now, uh, we are talking here. Uh, yesterday, the had also attacked civilian cars. Uh, the soldiers of, uh, this is, you can see, the part of uh, Arenam soldiers, they think that uh, the government is using the civilian cars to take soldiers from Maputo and ascending to the place where Afonso Jakama is living. So as of now, they are still under discussions to see what will happen in the future. But according to what Afonso Jakama uh, said yesterday, uh, there's no way to think that uh, even next week they will hold a discussion with the president. What they want is uh, to create a condition of Afonso Jakama to, uh, to leave the bush to the uh, place where the government wants to meet with him and uh, discuss with uh, 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 tranquility and uh, cease fire of the attacks done by uh, two, can say, two movements, because this attack is not only the part of Renamo, but also the part of the uh, uh, government soldiers. Uh, they still uh, uh, attacking each other according to the uh, places where Afonso Jagama is living. That is our Mozambican correspondent, Bright Sonjera, on the line to Ntlantla Mashlangu. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. 
This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel African in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Your time is 17.16 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spumela Lezondi and I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African time this evening. Now the leader of uh, alright, that's the story that we just did, which is the leader of Mozambican's opposition party Renamo, who is accusing the um, the ruling party of attacking his base. Now let's go to Ethiopia now, where education experts at the Pan-African Symposium on Education Resilience and Social Cohesion in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, say ensuring equitable access to education is key in addressing the root causes of conflict and instability in Africa. The three-day event, which ends tomorrow, assesses how inclusive and innovative education policy and programs can contribute to sustainable peace and development across the continent. Currently, three out of ten children in Africa are living in conflict-affected areas and are exposed to numerous risks. About 16 African ministers of education are attending the conference. For more on this, we now joined on the line from Addis Ababa in Ethiopia by Nevan Nezevich, education specialist for the Peace Building Education and Advocacy Program at UNICEF. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Hello, how are you? I'm all right. Now, if you can start by telling us briefly what sparked this conference. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, we've been, uh, as UNICEF, we've been working with the, uh, the Dutch government uh, for the past four years, um, really looking at piloting how we can use social services like education to address root causes underpinning conflict in many uh, fragile and conflict-affected settings, not only in Africa but in other regions across the world. And the programming is now coming to an end at the end of this month and our objective with this symposium was really to share lessons learned, experiences with our ministerial partners from across a number of countries in Africa together with the um, African Union uh, Association uh, for the Development of Education in Africa to mainstream um, the results and the lessons and to inform programming moving forward so that we can continue building upon Uh, the successes that have been achieved. And it's also been very timely, um, particularly in the current context where you've recently had the World Humanitarian Summit um, and other high-level global forums that have really been trying to explore how to address root causes or factors leading to a lot of the migration issues um, uh, to to many different countries. Um, And I think many of the recent discussions have also pointed to um, conflict being a, a critical factor underpinning many of the current insecurities, the migration flows uh, to, to many different countries. Um, how did you select the countries that you involved in your discussions? Mm. Well, uh, at one level it was quite easy. I mean, we uh, started off by selecting and inviting countries uh, with which we've been working for the past four years uh, in Eastern and Southern Africa as well as uh, Western and Central Africa. I mean, that was around 10 countries that we were working with directly. 
Uh, then there are also another six countries that we've been working with indirectly and that have also demonstrated a high level of interest in learning from the experiences of the program so that they can also apply some of those lessons. So countries like that would include Kenya, um, uh, Nigeria, um, and so on, that, that are grappling with a number of uh, different issues related to um, internal insecurity, uh, marginalization of groups who are vulnerable to a number of different risks, um, and so on. So you are looking at children who are internally displaced as well as um, as as well as children who are um, displaced across borders. And, and can you just tell us about the differences between the challenges that they could perhaps be facing um, depending on, uh, on the displacement or on the problem of the displacement in that particular country or region? Mm, yes, no, absolutely. Well, I mean, it depends on, on the context of the country, of course, so it's, it's difficult to speak um, about uh, the, the same types of challenges that, that they'll experience in different contexts. But if you take the example of um, South Sudan, uh, which for the past um, two years plus has grappled with the issue of internally displaced children who fled conflict or fled other risks um, and have also been affected by um, uh, famine and disease and so on, or the risk of famine, um, you know, there have been a lot of protection issues inside South Sudan uh, for displaced children, um, you know, violence against children, um, you know, children being attacked, um, targeted, abducted to armed groups. Um, so in, in contexts like South Sudan, we've been facing uh, with our partners the dual task of both protecting children and making sure either they're not recruited or we can secure their release and help reintegrate them into society in an effective way. Um, but also ensuring uh, that they continue access to education. And the latter part of that is, is a tricky one because um, we are trying to make sure that they're accessing quality and relevant education that will help them in their recovery and their future longer-term development, which even in a normal context in many of the countries we work in is a challenge because of low capacities and quality of the education services that are available. If you're looking at refugee flows, and if you use the example of South Sudanese children again, um, flowing to Ethiopia, for example, uh, there are numerous challenges there related to lack of access to services um, and, and the lack of availability of teachers and materials to you know, give children and adolescents, importantly, which are often forgotten in many of the um, uh, programming models that have been applied um, through refugee education. Um, or have been excluded, um, you know, providing them with access to education services that will help them recover with a psychosocial kind of healing, uh, counseling embedded in education services, as well as protection, of course, but also providing them with um, opportunities that will help them recover and not feel the need to move on to um, secondary points of migration, which is, which is a very big challenge in many contexts. And one of the additional factors there is also then with host communities. You know, there, there are certain tensions that, tensions that sometimes within, in places like Gambela in Ethiopia, um, there are uh, uh, quite a number of existing um, uh, challenges with education services in places like that. Over to you. Mm. Um, and do you find that the stakeholders that you invited are interested in finding solutions and innovative ideas to help these children? Well, absolutely. Um, the, the government partners in particular uh, that have been participating over the past two days here 
have been hugely engaged in uh, uh, wanting to draw on a lot of the lessons and, and are doing so. So that's very encouraging. Um, and now you've engaged with the the people that you invited in the meeting, and I, I'm assuming you're going to make recommendations as well. Who are you making them to, and, and what are you expecting to happen from the recommendations so it doesn't just become just a talk shop? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, uh, I suppose at one level we're very fortunate because a lot of the things that we're, we're, we're reviewing here with our partners are already being attempted by many of the governments we're working with. Um, and so they're looking for solutions. Um, so I think at that level, um, it will be a natural continuation of, of the work we're doing, and they'll act on those recommendations um, that come out of the, the workshop we're expecting tomorrow. The recommendations um, or the commitments uh, will normally be made by um, the AU inter-country mechanism uh, for peace education and ADIA. Um, and so that will then inform, uh, we're hoping, also the African Union strategies for education that we reviewed today. And, of course, UNICEF's own policies and programs moving forward. Um, UNICEF is looking to build on and sustain this work through a lot of the education and emergency work um, that we're looking to uh, engage in moving forward and uh, has been also highlighted through the recent launching of um, a global platform for education and emergency that uh, donors are already committing to and our own commitment as an organization is to build on, on this work through that mechanism for children in these um, vulnerable and um, fragile settings. Nevin Nezovich, thank you very much for joining us. Okay, thank you. Nevin Nezovich there is the Education Specialist for the Peace Building Education and Advocacy Program at the United Nations Children's Fund, joining us on the line from Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Get to know Channel Africa and all the people who bring news, views, and great African entertainment. You can now catch Channel Africa on DSTV Audio Bouquet, Channel 902. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. And the time is 17.26 Central African time, right here on Africa Digest and Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now, the Ministry of Health in the Democratic Republic of Congo has launched a vaccination campaign as part of efforts to prevent the spread of yellow fever. This follows the outbreak of the virus in Angola last December and the subsequent confirmation of dozens of cases in the DRC. So far, the disease has claimed the lives of close to 300 people and left hundreds others infected. More from Teresa San Cristobal of the International Medical Humanitarian Agency, Doctors Without Borders. What we have now in DRC is 48 cases of yellow fever, being the majority cases that they are coming from an outbreak in Angola. So this is the main concern. In this moment, there is a plan of the Ministry of Health of uh, DRC of vaccinating 2 million people. MSF is supporting them in Congo province in a vaccination of 350,000 people. Has the limited supply of the vaccine affected your operations in any way? Yeah, I mean, the case of Angola, the lack of vaccines have made that even if we have received the vaccine, it was always very fractionated and the Ministry of Health has to handle with a different speed of vaccination that if you will have the full 
number of vaccines available when you want to start your strategy. It obliges to the Ministry of Health to have to do it slower than it will be good. And in an outbreak, to respond on time is important. So they have received species by species a little bit in a slower way that it will be desirable. What has been at the core of your response, given the fact that there's no specific treatment for yellow fever? So basically, the most important part is the vaccination, because it's, it's really effective, vector control, and then to treat the patients with the symptoms that they have, so to do a, a symptomatic treatment that reduces clearly the mortality. It's true that we don't have a treatment for the yellow fever, but we can treat the complications that having yellow fever has. So we have been working supporting the Ministries of Health in yellow fever case management. We have been supporting the Ministry of Health in Congo for the vaccination and working on the vector control. We have been working in surveillance. So basically one of the most important things is to detect the cases on time and to make sure that there is correct medical treatment. So we have been helping supporting the ministries in what we think it is more efficient to stop the outbreak. And how do you identify where to focus the response on? Basically, in an outbreak, you will for sure focus the most important part of your response in the places where you have autochthonous cases, because this means that the vector, the mosquito, the Aedes, it is already contaminated and you can expect more cases. So you will focus more on this. We're focusing mainly in all the places that they have autochthonous cases. In an ideal situation, you will have a full coverage of vaccination of the full population, but in a case of scarcity of vaccine, we were focusing where the risk is higher, so basically in each of the provinces or municipalities that they have autochthonous cases. Just finally there, how are you dealing with some of the challenges of controlling the spread of the virus? There are new challenges from other times that it is the mobility of the population is very clear that in many countries the coverage of vaccines previous to the outbreak was very low and then you need to vaccinate a big, big portion of the population and the scarcity of vaccines makes it difficult to have an ambitious plan to vaccinate everybody and to cover everybody. I think vector control is also quite complicated. Urbanization is quite complicated. So at the end, what we have tried to do is to discuss with the Ministry of Health and with the WHO what are the possible most effective ways to work on the outbreak. But yeah, it's challenging to have a number of vaccines that are limited and you have to take decisions according to that. It's challenging the mobility of the people and the, the clear, I mean, the clear multifocal uh, outbreak that we have. To have many, many provinces of Angola affected is a quite difficult challenge. And uh, what we try to do is to work with the Ministries of Health and with the other partners of the Ministries of Health to ensure that the outbreak is controlled as possible. That is Teresa San Cristobal of the International Medical Humanitarian Agency, Doctors Without Borders, speaking to Elizabeth Litija. It's time for your news headlines with Amanda Machak. Thank you, Spumelele. Good evening. The authorities in Somalia say the death toll in yesterday's attack on a hotel in Mogadishu has risen to 13, with more than 40 others seriously wounded. 
Moroccan police have arrested six people suspected of belonging to a militant cell with ties to Islamic State. The cell had been active in Casablanca and the northern city of Tetuan and its neighboring town of Matil. And South Africa's Gauteng Social Development Department is making plans to fly back to Malawi, a pair of twins born inside a bus in Benoni. Their mother gave birth to them after the bus they were traveling in from Malawi to Johannesburg broke down. Those are news headlines. Thank you very much, Amanda, for that update. It's 17.31 Central African time right here on Africa Digest. Remember that we are on channel 802 on the DSTV Bouquet as well. Um, it's 802 on the Bouquet on DSTV. And you can find us on Twitter. We are on channel Africa One. That is channel Africa One on Twitter. Now, a new trial in South Africa has shown how the text message system has the ability to improve adherence to care in chronic patients. The trial was spearheaded by the South Africa African Medical Research Council, SAMRC, and its research partners to test whether innovative interventions such as short messaging systems like SMS sent to mobile phones may improve adherence to chronic diseases, to chronic, chronic disease treatment rather for conditions such as hypertension. To talk to us more about this, we're joined on the line by Dr. Natalie Leon, specialist scientist at the SAMRC's Health System Research Unit. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Hello, thank you for having me. Now, Dr. Leon, why did you decide to, take, to test um, SMSs to, um, to help with patients suffering from chronic illnesses? Well, basically, um, you know, most people in the country have a cell phone, and cell phone is a useful communication tool, and so it's only logical that one would look at ways that one can use cell phone communication to also improve um, knowledge and um, and other types of behaviors that can improve health. And there are many studies that are being done to show that um, sending people SMSs have the potential to improve their ability to um, adhere to medication or even to change um, certain things like smoking behavior or to improve weight loss. So um, this trial then... Uh, you know, builds on that sort of emerging evidence that perhaps if we use an SMS to people um, who have hypertension to remind themselves to take the medication, to pick it up, that it could make a difference to their blood pressure control. Ask you, um, Natalie, I'm going to ask you not to move too much because we seem to be struggling with the line there a little bit. It breaks in places. Um, okay. All right. So... How did you then find the people that you tested um, the service on? The, the um, trial was tested in one uh, busy uh, primary health care clinic in Cape Town where there was a large amount of uh, diabetes patients. And the trial basically selected three groups um, and, and enrolled people into groups that would receive SMSs, um, giving them information a group that would receive SMSs and that could also SMS back if they wanted some more information, and then lastly a group that did not receive SMSs. And then they delivered these SMSs over a year-long period and then tested people's level of blood pressure before they received the SMSs and afterwards, as well as um, 
to, to what extent they had picked up their medication regularly. Mm. Um, let's talk about the three different groups now. Um, you're saying there's one group that could SMS back, one group that could receive SMSs but not SMS back, and one group that couldn't um, receive SMSs. Now let's talk about the two groups that could SMS and SMS back. Um, was there a lot of feedback or was there um, a lot of communication from the ones that were, uh, that were allowed to SMS back? Interestingly, not that much. It was uh, a limited ability to feedback. They could um, SMS back if they wanted to change their appointment or SMS back if they had um, a particular query about about the SMSs. Um, Natalie, the line the line is actually getting worse and worse. Um, we probably maybe we should try to get you back, but it, it keeps on getting it keeps on getting uh, worse. So I'm going to um, have to stop it there for now, and maybe we can try to get you back um, just to continue this discussion because it is an interesting an interesting topic there. <laughs> This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya. And you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. All right, it's 17.37 Central African time, and we have Dr. Natalie Leon back on the line. Um, now, Dr. Leon, you were telling us um, before the line became bad there, um, you were telling us about the group that could SMS back and what the process of that was and whether they were doing that constantly. Yes, just to say that they did not make that much use of it, partly because um, I think when I interviewed people subsequently, some of the reasons were that people were not, um, they were not uh, about trying to change their appointments at the health facilities, partly because they did not think that would be well received. So although they had the ability to change the appointment, um, patients do have an experience of, of not being that comfortable with trying to do that and not being successful in changing appointments. So that part of the SMS was not that well utilized. Mm. Um, and the group that could not um, receive SMSs at all, did they complain? Uh, did they uh, forget sometimes to take their medication? What was the situation there? Well, 
the trial results showed that there was a small difference um, between those who could get SMSs and those who could not in terms of reducing blood pressure, actually clinical measurement of blood pressure. It was very small, but nevertheless there was a difference. Um, there, there was also a difference between the level of people picking up their medicine. So more people who received SMSs picked up their medicine more regularly. So although these results are very small, they do, te- they do point towards the potential for SMSs to add some value in promoting um, adherence to medication and possibly to improve people's clinical levels of control of blood pressure. Mm. So what do you do now with the results? What we did was we did feed it back to the health services, but we also have um, managed to uh, uh, build this into a, a new and larger trial where we're now trying to see if SMSs could be useful for a different group of chronic disease patients like diabetes. And we are trying to do a similar trial in Cape Town, Johannesburg, and Lilongwe, Malawi. And the idea is to see whether SMSs in different parts of the country and in different African countries have more or less the same positive effect. Yes. And whether it can be applied to different chronic diseases such as diabetes, hypertension, etc. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That is Dr. Natalie Leon, a specialist scientist at the South African Medical Research Council there, joining us on the line. Now, Malawi's High Court judge in Mzuzu City, northern region of Malawi, Dengiswayo Madise, has granted three Mzuzu residents an injunction banning herbalists from operating as one way of curbing the attacks on persons with albinism. The injunction has been obtained on the premise that herbalists are fueling attacks on persons with albinism in Malawi. The three, through lawyer George Katipatike, also asked the courts to stop the media from carrying advertisements on herbalists. Cases of killing and abducting albinos are on the increase in the country and Malawians are accusing the government of failing to find means of dealing with the malpractice. For more on this, here's correspondent George Mohango, who is in Lilongwe. Apparently, uh, what is very current is the fact that uh, a number of uh, people in Malawi are hailing the decision by the High Court, which is an injunction that was gotten by three people to restrain traditional doctors or herbalists or which doctors from, you know, performing their duties in Malawi. And this means definitely that uh, they are not going to discharge their duties they are not going to be selling their medical drugs or these uh, local helps ABCD to the public. And if anybody else is caught doing so, it means he or she definitely is going to face the arm of the law, according to the injunction that has been obtained in Missouri. So what has been uh, the reaction from uh, the different stakeholders, particularly the Association of Witch Doctors or Traditional Healers? According to the Association of uh, Traditional Healers in Malawi, known as the Herbalist Association of Malawi, they say that they are yet to respond to this uh, court injunction, looking at the fact that uh, their business definitely has been damaged and that their uh, image has been tarnished, and that uh, secondly, that they have been portrayed as the people behind you know, the killing of persons with albinism. So they are yet to sit down and then draft 
the way forward, and they'll be meeting in the administrative capital Ilonge, and then some of them will be meeting in the commercial capital Blantyre, just to strategize on how to react to this uh, court injunction that restrains or puts their business in jeopardy. Well, we know that the situation there in Malawi when it comes to the killing of people with albinism is quite serious, George. Have we been able to get numbers at this stage in terms of uh, the stats of how many people have been killed and uh, how many have been arrested, if any? In terms of uh, the statistics, locally and uh, according to the police especially, they're talking about uh, 18 people having been killed at the moment. Because as of last Friday, one was killed in Incheu, a district that is very close to Mozambique, and that puts the number to 17. But if it comes to people that have been arrested so far, the number hovers around 19. But still more, they are suspects and they are suspected. In terms of those people that have been jailed, only five have been jailed and they are serving their custody and they've been jailed, maybe they'll be, they'll be serving their custodial sentences for about 17 years or so. Mm-hmm. Suffice to say that even the media, even the media in Malawi has been banned from putting adverts on radio or even newspapers, you know, that talks about maybe these traditional healers or which doctors, you know, performing mm-hmm. their duties. saying so. It means that legal redress will set its course on each and every media house. Now, George, one can imagine that all these killings obviously have instilled a sense of fear in people who are living with albinism. Have you been able to maybe uh, speak to somebody who is living with albinism and really speak to them about some of the main issues that they're struggling with as a result of these killings that have been taking place? George? What has been transpiring, basically based on what the persons with albinism are speaking about and what, you know, the Association of the Albinos is talking about in terms of uh, the security or how people perceive that uh, if it means killing them, then one will be rich. Those definitely, you know, are just, you know, some hideous because even the people that have been arrested so far are confessing to the fact that even the money that they were promised after killing those persons, they haven't, you know, gotten that kind of money. And those people that are promising them to be giving them money, you know, at the end of the day, they seem to be at large. So definitely this is a phenomenon of just a mere talk according to, you know, persons with albinism, even the courts, even those people that are in high authority, the government authorities. You know, this is just a general feeling that if one kills those people, it means that he or she will be very rich. Suffice to say that this is a trademark that is maybe, you know, uh, coming down because recently it was in Tanzania where, you know, this issue was so popular and it was happening. So it's just trekking down to Malawi. But it's only that it's very new and very strange in as far as the history of Malawi is concerned. But nothing has been attached to one getting rich. It's just a feeling. And just lastly, before we let you go, Georgia, what has been the stance of the presidency on this issue? The president, uh, that's according to President Peter Mutarika, has been flat out in the media discouraging this tendency, and each and every day cannot just pass by without, you know, listening to President Peter Mutarika, you know, speaking uh, in various you know, radio stations, TV stations, discouraging, and then, you know, talking about this issue that it's not only for Malawi or people, Malawians, to be killing persons with abilism because there is no such a thing that if one kills those people and sells the bones, then he or she will be rich. That is our correspondent in Lilongwe in Malawi, George Mohango, telling us about an injunction banning herbalists from operating as one way of curbing the attacks on persons with albinism. It's time for your economic news with Rusani Matebula.
Thanks, Pumelele. A feared credit downgrade for South Africa to junk could see direct investment in the ailing economy slide further. This as investors flee to other markets in search of higher returns. Standard & Poor's, which ranks Africa's most industrialized country, just one step above sub-investment grade, is due to make its ratings decision public on Friday. Some analysts believe a credit downgrade to sub-investment has already been priced into the currency. And a general household survey released by Statistics South Africa today reveals that almost a third of the South African population is now relying on social grants. There's been a steady increase from 12.7% of the population in 2013 to 30.1% in 2015. Kefilwe Masiteng of Statistics South Africa also says the figures on young people's education levels are very good. We have about 30% of the population now who are depending on the social grants. About 16.3 million people now are the recipients. And the other issue was that um, in the issue of education, about 33.2% of the people aged five years and older have attended educational institutions. 88% of South Africa above the age of five have attended educational institutions and this were either primary or high school. Only about 4.4% of the people have been in tertiary education. Nigerian oil minister Emmanuel Ibu Gachuki says he saw open-mindedness in the OPEC meeting but did not know what the outcome will be. All ministers from the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries met this morning in Vienna, Austria, where Iran and Saudi Arabia are expected to clash over output targets. Kachuku says Nigeria's oil production has climbed to 1.6 million barrels per day last month, output falling to 1.4 million barrels per day due to a string of militant attacks on an ex- and an accident on the ExxonMobil platform. And Congo Republic's government is proposing to cut spending in the current 2016 budget by around 9%, repeating a similar media revision made last year. This is oil prices cut into revenue. Oil and gas revenues were reduced. Crude oil production this year projected at over 94 million barrels, up from 89 million barrels in 2015. And about 45,000 workers face layoffs in South Africa's struggling mining sector. This according to Labor Union, the National Union of Mine Workers. Mining companies are under pressure from low commodity prices and rocketing costs, triggering a wave of job cuts. Financial indicators now, the U.S. dollar trading at 15.66, South African rands at 11.09, Botswana Pula, and 10.41, Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.69 to the British pound and 0.89 against the euro. Commodities gold, $1,215, platinum at $971 per fine ounce. Brand crude oil is now hovering at $49.75 per barrel. That's how it's looking right now. Thank you very much, Usani. At 7.50 Central African Time, here's Mosibudi Makura with your sports.
Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news. News making the rounds in the South African football circles is that former Nigerian Super Eagles head coach Stephen Keshi is the new Orlando Pirates head coach. This is still to be confirmed by both parties as the contract of the current coach, Eric Tinkler, ends at the end of this month. There has been a rife speculation in recent months that Pirates will part ways with Tinkler due to a barren season, which saw the Soweto Giants finishing in seventh place on the log under Tinkler. Pirates also failed to win the CAF Confederations Cup and the recent NetBank Cup final. The former Bafana Bafana player is also linked with a coaching post at Victoria Citibel in Portugal, the team he played for between 2006 as well as 2008. The memorial service of Ted Dumitri, the former Kaiser Chiefs, Orlando Pirates and Mamlodi Sundowns and Bafana Bafana coach was held earlier on Thursday afternoon in Johannesburg. Dumitri passed away last week after suffering a heart attack. At the time, he was a member of the South African Football Coaches Association, an organization he had founded. The illustrious coach who won the four league titles with all the teams he coached was a cult figure in local football. One of the players that he coached at Sundowns Eric Ramasige spoke to Channel Africa's Patrick Baloyi and says Dimitri was a knowledgeable and shrewd tactician who changed the face of football in the country. His philosophy in yeah. football, his training methods, the way he was talking to the players, the way he was, you know, he was like a father figure. I mean, he was that type of guy who will allow you to do mistakes and yes. he will believe in your talent. You will never change anything. He believed in African uh, uh, guys that got skilled, that you will never want you to change your, 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 playing your playing style or whatever. Former Sundowns captain Michael Manzini, who to this day remains the most successful Sundowns keeper under Ted Dumitri. Under Dumitri and Manzini, Sundowns won three successive league titles. Speaking to Channel Africa's Patrick Baloye, Manzini says he has never worked with somebody whose passion and dedication in soccer was unmatched like that of Dumitri. One of the most, most, most intelligent coaches uh, I've ever met. Yeah. Uh, I think in all honesty, probably underrated mm-hmm. in, in many respects. I think his contribution to those that, that, that know him very well, his contribution to South African football is, is evidence to them. On to athletics news, South Africans Wade Van Niekerk and Kasta Semenya are big favourites to win their respective 400 as well as the 800-metre events at the Golden Gala Diamond League meeting in Rome, Italy on Thursday night. Channel Africa's London-based correspondent Geshom Yati reports. Wade Van Niekerk is the big drawcard in the men's 400-metre race tonight. He is the current world champion and has run the quickest time of 44.11 seconds against all his opponents this year. Among the entrants in this race is Isaac Makwala of Botswana, who held the 400 meters Africa record before it was broken by Vanikek last year. Kasta Semenya, who has reignited her form, is favored to win the women's 800 meters, following her dominant victories in two other Diamond League events held in Morocco and in the USA. Semenya is likely to face strong challenges from the 2013 world champion and Commonwealth Games champion Eunice Sum of Kenya, Habitam Alemo of Ethiopia and the up-and-coming Francine Nyosaba of Burundi. South Africa has other potential winners in tonight's competition with continental record holder Sunet Villon competing in the women's javelin, long jumpers Rushuail Samai and Lovo Manyonga. Geshom Nyati Shana Rafa Sports, 
London. And finally, Netball News, Doma Blama, the Spa Proteus consulting coach, has announced her 14-member squad for the three-test series against Wales, set to take place at the International Convention Centre in Durban in the KwaZulu-Natal province from the 17th to the 19th of June. The team consists of three new camps, Gauteng Jaguars' Jenny Stain and the Northwest Flames' Rinske Skoltz, as well as Singrid Bergam. That side will be captained by Marika Holtzen, um, Holtzhausen. Rather. Plummer says this is the strongest squad she could have selected for this test series. This time, I asked South Africa if I could come in and see the finals of the Brutal Fruit so I could see the depth of your players and what was actually available to be selected. And yes, there were some players that really stood out to me and I love great athletes. I love um, you know, players that have got netball intelligence and I think that's what we got out of the whole squad. And uh, from that, it was um, performance based on who got into the team for the final 14. The Zaya Sports News at the Sour stay tuned to China Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. It's 17.56 Central African Time Network about top stories. The death toll climbs following an attack in Somalia. A new trial in South Africa shows how the text message system has the ability to improve adherence to care in chronic patients. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour from myself as Pumele Lezondi, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Catherine Malik, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for listening. For comments, send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also send us SMSs plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. That is plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. You can also find us on Twitter at Channel Africa One. We leave you with Tulale four 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 by Saudi Soul and Mikasa.
look into my eyes. 